As we begin this morning in Mark chapter 12, starting at verse 18, we're in the midst of a time where Jesus, in his public ministry, is in Jerusalem. It's right before his crucifixion. And he's battling back and forth with the religious authorities. Isn't it amazing that those who should have embraced Jesus, those who should have been watching for him with such great expectancy and should have rejoiced at his teaching and at his nature, those who should have embraced him instead rejected him. The religious leaders kept Jesus at a distance. They were critical of him, antagonistic towards him, accusing him. Common people, as we'll see in our text today, they received him gladly. And the religious leaders were always looking to trap Jesus, to stump him with a difficult question, to make him look foolish or ignorant in front of the crowds. It would never work. We're going to see some futile examples of this in Mark chapter 12, beginning at verse 18. Then some Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him, and they asked him, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote to us that if a man's brother dies and leaves his wife behind and leaves no children, his brother should take his wife and raise up the offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and dying, he left no offspring. And the second took her, and he died. Nor did he leave any offspring. And the third likewise. So the seven had her and left no offspring. Last of all, the woman died also. Therefore, in the resurrection, when they rise, whose wife will she be? For all seven had her as wife. The Sadducees were a class of educated, sophisticated, influential, and wealthy men. They were sort of the Harvard graduates in that day. Influential positions of prestige and power. But they didn't believe in supernatural things. They didn't believe in immortality, in spirits, or in angels. In their mind, when you died, you died. When your body was dead, there was no soul that lived on in a world beyond. Yes, they believed in God, but not in anything regarding the immortality of the soul. And in their question that they asked Jesus... They wanted to make the resurrection seem like something ridiculous. And so they painted this elaborate picture. Perhaps it was almost a running joke among the Sadducees that they used on several other occasions. I can see them bringing this this, uh, question to one of the Pharisees who did believe in the resurrection. And the Pharisees saying, well, I don't know. Well, Jesus isn't going to say, I don't know. He's going to respond to this question. But you see how they framed it, of course. They had this idea of of a family of seven brothers. And the oldest brother marries a woman, and he dies before they have any children. Now, in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 25, they established in Israel a practice that has been come to known as levirate marriage. The word levirate comes from the Latin word for brother-in-law, which is levir. And the idea of levirate marriage is pretty simple. It is that if a man marries a woman and dies before she has children then it is the responsibility of one of his brothers to marry the widow and to raise up children that will be counted as the deceased brother's children. And the whole idea for this is that the deceased brother continues on his name and his inheritance in Israel and that that family name and that family inheritance isn't wiped off uh, from uh, among men. Well, so they come and they bring this question to Jesus. How about it? You know, on the face of it, it's just an absurd question. It's sort of like asking somebody, well, how many angels can dance on the head of a pin? 
Or did Adam have a belly button? Or something like that. Well, you know, it's a ridiculous question. They brought it to Jesus. And Jesus is going to begin to to answer right here. Of course, I I would have known what I would have. The first thing that strikes me about the whole story is you start thinking, what about this woman? Seven dead men in her home. Was there some insurance policy here or something going on? That's the first thing I'd look into, but... Of course, just a hypothetical question. Jesus is going to answer. Verse 24. Jesus answered and said to them, Are you not therefore mistaken, because you do not know the Scriptures nor the power of God? For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. You see, the Sadducees, in their example, like to picture seven brothers in heaven fighting over this one woman. Well, no, she's my wife. Well, no, she's my wife. Well, we all were married to her. And they see all these brothers fighting over this one woman in heaven. She says, no, you don't understand at all. The Sadducees were making a critical mistake. They assumed that life in the world to come is pretty much just like this life, only improved. Well, friends, the life in the world to come is completely different than this life. It's life of a different order altogether. In the age to come, our lives will be lived on a completely different principle, in a dimension that we can't even imagine. You know, many people make the same mistake as the Sadducees when it comes to their ideas about heaven. They think of heaven as just a glorious version of earth. For example, the old American Indians used to think that way, didn't they? They would call heaven the happy hunting ground. Because for them, well, what could be better than a happy hunting ground? And that's what heaven must be. If you want to go back even further, the ancient Vikings, they thought of heaven as Valhalla, this place where all the warriors would fight and they'd be able to fight and kill and maim their enemies. And then at the end of the day, everybody on the field of battle would rise up and be made whole again. And then they'd all go to a big banqueting hall and drink and be merry and probably drink blood from the skulls of their enemies and all that kind of stuff. Well, you know, that was their idea of just, well, life as it's lived on this world, just better, improved. But friends, that's mistaking the idea of heaven altogether. Heaven's life is of a different order altogether. And Jesus points this out. If you notice here in verse 24, he says, Are you not therefore mistaken, because you do not know the Scriptures nor the power of God? This explains why the Sadducees were wrong about the resurrection. That their wrong thinking came from ignorance. Jesus, you don't know. You don't know. You're ignorant. And then he says, this is what you're ignorant about. You're ignorant, number one, about the scriptures. And secondly, you're ignorant about the power of God. You know, if you fail in your knowledge in either one of those places, you're going to fail pretty significantly. When you don't know the scriptures, you don't have an anchor for truth and belief. How we need to get back to simply asking the question, well, what does the Bible say about it? Well, what does the Bible say about this problem or this difficulty? Just go back to what the Bible says. But then again, some people know the scriptures, but they don't know the power of God. And when we doubt God's power, we doubt God's ability to do what he's promised to do in the scriptures. And so here were the Sadducees. They like to pose as men of a vast intelligence, of superior understanding. They looked down upon the Pharisees. They thought they were the hicks, just the, the fundamentalist, back to the Bible bunch. But Jesus looks at these Sadducees square in the eye and goes, you, you are ignorant. You don't know the Bible. Many people today who regard themselves or are regarded by others as very intelligent. They become 
They become dull and understanding when it comes to Jesus. You know, you can be brilliant about a thousand things. Molecular biology, intricate aspects of engineering, the, the, the most deep secrets of computer programming and engineering. You might know it all, but what good is it if you don't know the scriptures or the power of God? What do you think? Heaven's looking for engineers? And I said, well, you know, I don't know anything about Jesus, but look at all I can do as an engineer. God will say, well, we build things ourselves up here. No, thank you. You know, what knowledge is really important for eternity is knowledge of the scriptures and understanding the power of God. Now, please, nobody should think for a moment that I think that other kind of knowledge or learning isn't important. It's good. It's the glory of man to find such things out. But if you gain all of that, but still miss the scriptures and still miss the power of God, well, you've missed something that is the most important thing of all in life. Now, Jesus is trying to instruct the Sadducees about what life in heaven is like in regard to their question, at least. He says in verse 25, For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. You can't take your present relationships and figure that they're going to be just the same in heaven. On earth, human relationships are largely a matter of time and place. In other words, I began my life mostly as the son of my parents. I mean, that's how I define myself. But as you grow up and as you move, well, then you define yourself more as a husband and then more as a father and then maybe more as a grandfather and say, well, what am I going to be like in heaven? Am I going to be a son? Am I going to be a husband? Am I going to be a father? Am I going to be a grandfather? Jesus is saying, no, all those things don't matter the same way that they do on earth. All those are relevant to time and place. In heaven, we're more defined by our relationship to God than we are by our relationship to any other person. And then he goes on and he says, you're going to be like the angels. You see, from everything we know in the scriptures, angels don't have babies. And you know those paintings you've seen of the little baby angels with wings on them? Not scripturally accurate. (laughs) From everything we know from the scriptures, angels don't have babies. Well, that's how we're going to be in heaven. You're not going to have babies anymore in heaven. You're not going to need to. Nobody's ever going to die. And in that respect, we're going to be just like the angels. Marriage ceases to have that reproductive aspect in heaven. It's just not there. It's just not necessary. And so we can't say we know for sure what it's going to be like in heaven. We know that it won't be the same as on earth, and we know that nobody will be disappointed. But to say, what exactly is this? I don't know. That's up to God. We don't know the answers to all these questions. There's mysteries that remain, but it doesn't take away from the basic truth of the resurrection. And that's what Jesus is pointing out to these Sadducees. Now, Jesus is going to go on, beginning at verse 26, and prove them wrong. First he answered their question, now he's going to prove them wrong about their understanding of the resurrection beginning at verse 26. He says, but concerning the dead, that they rise, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the burning bush passage, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. You therefore are greatly mistaken." You see, Jesus here assures the skeptical Sadducees that there is a resurrection of the dead, that they do rise, and that it's demonstrated in the Scriptures. Haven't you guys read your Bible? Haven't you read what it says in Exodus chapter 3 and how it talks about what God said to Moses from the burning bush? I find it interesting, too, that the Sadducees, one of the things they said is, for some reason, they thought the, uh, the only first 
that only the first five books of the Bible were really inspired by God, only the books that Moses wrote. And so I find it interesting that Jesus proves to them the resurrection of the dead from one of the books of Moses. He says, well, this is what you believe? Fine, I'll meet you on this ground. Uh, Exodus chapter 3 proves the resurrection of the dead. Now, you might scratch your head and say, well, how does it prove it? How does God saying to Moses, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, how does that prove the resurrection? Well, first of all, let's understand that God said this to Moses more than 400 years after Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob ever walked this earth. 400 years after that. Now, if 400 years after those men passed from this earth, if God said to Moses, I am the God of, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, not I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, it proves that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are still living. And they're still living in heaven, in glory, with God the Father. You see the point there? He's pointing this out to them, that God's the God of the living and not of the dead. And so he proves to them that there's a resurrection. Now, this really startled people that Jesus gave such a great answer. You can see this in verse 28. Then one of the scribes came, and having heard them reasoning together, perceiving that he had answered them well, asked him, which is the first commandment of all? Now, Bible scholars sort of split on whether or not there was a hostile intent in this man's question. Some people think that there was, that he's trying to get Jesus to pick and choose among the commandments, to put one above another, and as soon as he puts one above others, they'll sort of, ah, we got you, so you don't like this other commandment, huh? And so they're trying to, well, other people think he's not trying to put Jesus on the horn of a dilemma at all. That he's just saying, man, this guy knows his stuff, and this is something I've always wanted to ask somebody who really knows their stuff. What's the most important commandment? Boil it all down for me, Jesus. What's really important? He says, well, fine, he will. Verse 29, Jesus answered him, the first of all the commandments is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. This is the first commandment, and the second like it is this, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Those are important words, don't you think? Jesus is telling us right now, this is the greatest commandment. Do you want to know what's really important before God? What really matters before him? It's whether or not you love him. Now, first of all, you say, well, I love God. I feel very kindly towards him. I want you to notice that's not the kind of love that God's talking about. You know, it's such a dramatic change in the way that we speak in the Western world after some 200 or three or 400 years of this kind of thinking in our minds about what love is, these very romantic notions of love. When we speak of love, we almost immediately connect it with feelings. Is it a warm feeling that you have? And I trust that many of you have warm feelings towards God. Well, that's good. I would rather you have warm feelings than cold feelings towards God. But that's not what Jesus is talking about. I want you to notice that what Jesus is talking about is a love that can be commanded. You can't command somebody's warm feelings towards you. Husbands and wives try it from time to time, don't they? They virtually try to command each other to love one another with these warmth. You can't do that. It just doesn't work. No, but a different kind of love. 
a different kind of love that's based on decision. That's based on, I'm going to love and care and nurture and act kindly and act honorably towards this person. That's the kind of love that you can command. And this is a commandment. He commands, you shall love the Lord your God. Say, Well, okay, well, how much do I have to love him? Look at it there in verse 30. Just this, with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. That pretty much covers the whole gamut, I think. Love God with everything that you have. You know, this should be a dramatic wake-up call to us. It should remind us of what is really important in the law of God, and that's to love Him. You know, many of us think that what God wants most of all from us is our obedience. For example, go back to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. There they were in this relationship of perfect love and communion with God. And many people think that God sort of set like a mousetrap for them. And whenever they wanted to go and take the cheese, well, then the, the, the mousetrap sprang upon their fingers. And, well, they got caught. You didn't obey me. Now you got caught. That's not what broke God's heart. What broke God's heart is that a relationship of love was damaged and estranged between him and Adam and Eve. You know what Adam and Eve said when they went over and they took that apple? And I don't mean said with their words. What they said with their actions and their attitudes, they looked at God and they said, we don't trust you. You told us to do this. But you know what? There's something up your sleeve, God. You're holding out on us. And we don't trust you. We don't believe you. If a tear rolled down the cheek of God in heaven when Adam and Eve sinned, It was over the disobedience in and of itself. It was because the disobedience reflected a heart that didn't love him the way that he should. See, friends, that's what it's about. Before Adam and Eve had any other command, they were commanded to love the Lord, their God, who created them. And so this is the first commandment. It's the first commandment in regard to priority. Every other act of obedience that we can do before God is empty if we don't love him first. Friends, it's all empty without love. Paul the Apostle said that that's true, not only of our love towards God, but it's also true of our love towards one another. You could give your life in the most dramatic missionary service of the Lord. Friends, do you know that in different places around this globe, people are being martyred for their faith in Jesus Christ. And you could become one of those martyrs. You could go and be among those Christians in the Sudan who are being literally crucified by their persecutors. Because they're followers of Jesus Christ. And your body could be nailed to a cross and you could say, I'm doing this for Jesus. But Paul said that if you don't have love, it amounts to nothing. You see, this is why God wants our love even before our obedience. Because you can obey someone without loving them. But if you really love them, you'll obey them. God says, give me your love and I'll have it all. That's what he really wants from us. And so when the scribe heard Jesus say this, he got excited. Look at verse 32. So the scribe said to him, well said, teacher, you've spoken the truth. For there's one God and there is no other but he. And to love him with all the heart, with all the understanding, with all the soul and with all the strength. And to love one's neighbor as himself is more than all the burnt offerings and sacrifices. The, the man asking the question, Jesus, that's brilliant. That's it. You're right. Not that Jesus needed to be told that he was right, but I bet Jesus smiled as he said this because the sky's really getting it. 
And he says, love is more important than a thousand empty sacrifices. God doesn't want to see the empty carcasses of bulls and rams. What he wants is your heart turned to him in love. Friends, you might be offering to God a a hundred different acts of religious devotion. What he wants from you is your love. Now, this is the whole problem of idolatry. Idolatry is when we set our love upon someone or something else other than God. It says, love me. Love me. Give me that place of love in your life. Verse 34, when Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said, you're not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared question him. Oh, don't you love reading that one? They're like, you know what? We've tried playing Stump the Messiah, and it doesn't work. (laughs) So now Jesus is going to have some questions for them. Verse 35, then Jesus answered and said while he taught in the temple, how is it that the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? Now, it was well known and well established that the Messiah, the Christ, remember the two words are the same, that the Messiah would be a descendant of great King David in the Old Testament. We know that very well. And so the scribes would say, and they would teach, well, everybody, the Messiah will be a descendant of David. He will be a son of David. They use that term son in a very broad sense, meaning just an anse- uh, have the ancestry of David. All right, well, Jesus says, how is it that the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? Everybody's saying, well, of course he's the son of David. The scriptures say that. Well, Jesus is now going to say in verse 36, have you thought about this? For David himself said by the Holy Spirit, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, David himself calls him Lord. How is he then his son? And the common people heard him gladly. What's he saying? Well, you think you know all about the Messiah, don't you? You think you've got him all figured out. You say, well, yes, we do. The Bible says that he'll be the son of David. Well, you say, well, isn't that interesting? Did you know the Bible also says that he's David's Lord? Because David calls him Lord in that passage from Psalm 110 that Jesus quotes to them. And now they're thinking, well, wait a minute. How how can he be David's son if he's also David's Lord? Or how can he be David's Lord? Now, Jesus knew the answer. You know what he's trying to do? He's trying to get these men to the place where they'll see maybe they don't know as much as they thought they did. You know, one of the most dangerous places a person can be in is in the place where they know it all. Now, it's something we so readily see in other people, don't we? We look and we shake our heads. Oh, boy, they think they know it all. But how hard it is for us to see it in ourselves when we're in that place. And Jesus, looking at these men, he knew exactly. They thought they knew. They had the Messiah all figured out. And he wants to, oh, do you have the Messiah all figured out? Do you know all about it? Well, have you considered this? And now they're stumped. Now they're confused. He threw a monkey wrench into the machinery of their mind when it came to thinking about the Messiah. And Jesus is trying to get them to think, put away your preconceptions, go back to the Bible, and let the Bible tell you who the Messiah is. Does the Bible say the Messiah is the son of David? Yes, it does. Does the Bible say he's also David's Lord? Yes, it does. Does the Bible say that Jesus is human? Yes, it does. Does it say that he's God? Yes, it does. So we understand that Jesus is fully human and fully God. That his deity added humanity unto itself. And as for how it works out and all the injuries, well, that's God's business. We just know what the Bible says. Now, having exposed the scribes and the common people were getting excited about this, you know, 
Everyday people love it when the religious experts get their comeuppance. And so Jesus goes on now to verse 38. Then he said to them in his teaching, Beware of the scribes who desire to go around in long robes, love greetings in the marketplaces, the best seats in the synagogues, and the best places at feasts, who devour widows' houses, and for a pretense make long prayers. These will receive greater condemnation. And let's remember that the scribes were the Bible scholars of Jesus' day. And they were entrusted with preserving and learning and teaching the word of God to the world. These were men that the people of God should have been able to trust. But Jesus says instead, no, beware of the scribes. That's heavy, isn't it? How would you like it to be said of you? Jesus says of you, beware of you. That's heavy. Well, Jesus says, beware of the scribes. The scribes represent a complete contrast in how a true disciple should be. Jesus said a true disciple should be as a servant. The scribes wanted to be masters. Jesus said a true disciple has the simplicity of a child. And the the, the scribes wanted to be admired and praised. And Jesus said that a true disciple is like someone carrying a cross. And the scribes wanted comfort and adulation. And so he says, beware the scribes. They like to wear those long robes. say, well, what's Jesus? Mr. Blackwell here judging the way that they dress here? No, 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 no. You see, the long robe meant that you didn't have to do any work. That's what people did when they didn't have to do any work in that club. They wore a long robe. And so they'd walk around. Everybody would work for them. And that just displays the attitude of these scribes. Well, they won't work. Everybody has to serve them. They're men of leisure who watch while others work. And then he says, beware the scribes because they love the greetings they get. Oh, Rabbi, we love you. Oh, Rabbi, you're so smart. Oh, teacher, you're so wonderful. They they demand recognition from other people in their own walk with God, and they love having the image of a holy man. It says, beware the scribes in verse 39, because they love the best seats in the synagogues and in the feasts. They want the perks of status and privilege. They want everybody to see how holy they are, and they want to be the center of attention. They say, beware the scribes, because they devour widows' houses. So what's that? Well, you see, in those days, they had a teaching. It doesn't come from the Bible. It just comes from rabbinic traditions. They had a teaching that it was wrong for a scribe to be paid for his work as a teacher. You can't pay a scribe for his work as a teacher, they said. But, and the scribes figured this one out, it was permissible to give gifts to a scribe. And so as you might imagine, the scribes engineered this very exalted and very manipulative practice of giving gifts to the scribes. And oftentimes they'd latch on to a widow and sort of get in their graces and manipulate her and get her to give them her house. And in this way, they would devour a widow's house. And finally, in verse 40, he says that they, for a pretense, make long prayers. So beware of the scribes. You see, their relationship with God, it's more show than substance. They make prayers, but they're not praying to God. They're making a speech in front of the people. Even as they're praying, they're not thinking of God. They're thinking of, now, how can I turn this phrase just right so I sound really spiritual to everybody? And they make long, long prayers, and they think that makes them seem spiritual. Friends, you know, a long prayer isn't necessarily more spiritual than a short prayer. Sometimes a short prayer does the work just fine, especially in front of other people. When they don't want to hear you go on and pray for, you know, hours and hours. Just get to the point and and make your request made known to God. Pour out your heart before him and then let it pour and then that's it. Like what G. Campbell Morgan said about this. He said that when a man is away from his wife and if the journey is short, 
if he writes letters to her, they're very brief. Honey, I hope you're doing well. I'm fine here. It's a short trip that's short letters. But then the farther he is from his wife, the longer the letters become. G. Campbell Morgan said that some people must be a very long way from God because their prayers are so long. (laughs) We see Jesus said that these men deserve a greater condemnation. I can just imagine at the end of verse 40, Jesus was worn out. You know, this kind of conflict, this kind of attack from your enemies and the critics and the adversaries all around you, it just leaves you kind of worn out. It also leaves you a little annoyed. I just think, geez, maybe, maybe a little bit edgy right at this much. Just tired, just doesn't want to deal with it anymore. So what does he do? He goes and he sits down somewhere, finds a bench, sits down. And he just starts watching people. Do you ever do that? You ever go to a mall or an airport and you just sit down and watch people? And you think, people are weird, is what you think, if you watch them for very long. And so you just watch them. For, well, that's what Jesus was doing. Look at it, verse 41. Now Jesus sat opposite the treasury and saw how the people put money into the treasury. And many who were rich put in much. Then one poor widow came and threw in two mites, which make it quadrants. I think Jesus was cheered by the sight of this one poor widow coming up and putting her money into the treasury. We know from ancient history that the treasury, that the temple there in Jerusalem, was actually a series, I believe it was 12 trumpets made out of metal. I don't remember exactly if it was silver or gold, but metal trumpets that went forward and people would drop the money into the trumpet and it would go down to the bottom and then collect the money at the end of the day or whatever it was. So they had a whole series of them and people would walk by and put in their contribution. And you see here that, that rich people came by and they made a great ostentatious display of their giving. And I don't know exactly how they did it. Who knows? You know, maybe if they gave in coins, because in that day they would often give in coins. They didn't have paper money. They just had coins. And so maybe they would come and they'd get an enormous amount of coins and let them tinkle a great deal on this metal thing. You know, everybody hear this crash of coins going down. Wow, that's a big offering. And maybe a few people would applaud, you know, from the side there or something. <laughs> or maybe when the man wants to make a big deal about his offering, so he feels, I must pray before I give my offering. God, I thank you so much for this offering I'm about to give because it's in the amount of blah, 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 dollars. And Wow, everybody says around him. What a great offering. What a spiritual thing. You know, it just kind of reminds me of this whole dynamic of having that place of offering and the people walking by giving it and Jesus watching it. it. It reminds us that it isn't necessarily more spiritual to have an offering box instead of distributing offering bags. Now, I don't, I'm just don't think it matters one way or the other before God, but you should simply do what helps people give less ostentatiously. In other words, everybody could see who was giving at the temple because they had one place to bring the offering, everybody come, and everybody just, you could just do what Jesus, you could sit there and watch. It's kind of entertaining to see who came and gave the gifts. And people latched onto that, of course, didn't they? Now, you know, when we first started as a church and we were very small, We didn't pass around offering bags. It's awkward to pass around offering bags when it's just a few people out there. You know, because everybody can notice what's going on, right? It's just kind of, it just kind of sticks out and it's awkward. So when the church was small, we didn't have offering bags. We didn't want, we didn't want anybody to feel conspicuous in what they gave or what they didn't give. But then again, if the church gets a little bigger, then it's more conspicuous to have an offering box. 
They say, well, that's where you go, and everybody files along there, or there's the line at the offering box, or this or that. And so it's less ostentatious to pass bags. So I don't think it's a matter of right or wrong. You just say, well, what, what works? What, what helps people give in a way that doesn't call attention to their gift? If you notice here, it says in verse 41 that Jesus saw how the people put money into the treasury. Not what, how. He saw how they give. Now, I don't think he was talking about technique. You know, that man has a good coin flip, you know, with his wrist or something like that. No. (laughs) Jesus was looking at motive. He was looking at heart. He wanted to know where their hearts were when they gave. Now, of course, he noticed that many who were rich came in and they put in much. But this one poor widow came in and she threw in two mites. You know, you can get a widow's mite. Those coins exist. Little tiny coin made out of very inferior metal. And it was the smallest coin that they had in distribution in that part of the world at that time. I could go on and try to give you a lengthy scholarly description of how much a mite was worth. Let's just say not much at all. What I think is wonderful about this is how many of these mites did the woman have? She had two. What did she do with them? She dropped them both in. Isn't that wonderful? If you only had $2, and I mean only $2, no money in your checking account, no money in the bank, no access to credit. Now, you had $2. You say, well, God wants me to give something. You got these $2 in your hand. Say, what should I give? Would anybody fault you for giving one and keeping the other? We'd say, man, that is more generous giving than I've ever done in my life. You gave half of all the money you have. But the widow did more than that. She said, two? Well, I'll give them both. Who would have criticized her for hanging on to one? Nobody. But she gave them both. So this is what Jesus says about the widow's gift. Verse 43. So he called his disciples to him and said to him, Assuredly, I say to you that this poor widow has put in more than all those who have given to the treasury. For they put in out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty put in all that she had, her whole livelihood. Now, friends, I think this is absolutely amazing. And in one aspect, if we just be honest with this, we have to say, Jesus, you're nuts. What are you talking about? You say this woman gave more than she gave two pennies, and other men were giving contributions of equivalents of thousands of dollars. And look, I want you to see, he didn't say that he gave more than any one of them, that the woman gave more than any one of them. Look at it there, verse 43. He says, I say to you that this poor widow has put in more than all those who have given to the treasury. She put in more than all of them put together. Why? Because she gave everything she had. She gave it all. You know, those men who wrote out checks that were worth thousands of time and monetary value what the widow gave, thousands and thousands, it was an easy check for them to write. It's no big deal to them, no skin off their nose. But for the woman, it was sacrifice. Jesus' principle here shows us that a gift's value is determined by the spirit in which it's given. God doesn't want grudgingly given money. He doesn't want guilt money. He loves the cheerful giver. But it also shows us that God looks at what the gift cost us. You know why? Because the first and the greatest commandment is you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Friends, love is always connected to sacrifice. Always. You will sacrifice for the things you love. Now, I'm not saying that as an exhortation. I'm just stating a fact. Whatever it is that you love in your life, you will sacrifice for it. 
Oh, I know. You know, if I love to surf, I will sacrifice and get up early in the morning and go out in icy cold water and endure freezing my toes off to catch some waves. It's a sacrifice. Now, I find as the years go on, my love for surfing is declining because I think I'll go a little bit later in the day when it warms up. But I'll tell you, when I was willing to sacrifice more, I loved it more. You'll sacrifice for the things you love, period. Friends, if you won't sacrifice for God, then it's a measure of your love. I don't think I'm stating anything other than just what's obvious. Love is connected with sacrifice. And this woman sacrificed more than anybody else on that day. I think this principle shows us something else here. It's that God doesn't need our money. You know, if God needed our money, then how much we gave would be far more important to him than what heart we gave it with. He'd say, look, I'm falling short here. I need some big checks. But God doesn't need our money in that way. Then why does he want us to give? Because it's good for us. You need to be a giver. For who? Not for God's sake. Not even for the church's sake. You need to be a giver for your sake. Because if you don't become a giver... If you don't walk in that, there's something in your spiritual life that's not going to connect in the right way. God is a giver, and he wants us to be like him. And so where we see ourselves and where we see this widow has something to tell us. You know, the widow really challenges the mindset that says, I'll give to God when I have more. That's often where we're at. The woman had virtually nothing, but she was a giver. And this means that we can all please God. Every one of us can please God with our giving just as much as the richest man in the world. If you give with the right heart, if you give what God tells you to give, then you'll please God just as much as anybody else. He'll see it and he'll be pleased with it. I can't get away from one final thought. I think that when Jesus looked at that widow, he also saw himself and his own heart. He looked at that widow, and he realized just as much as that widow gave everything she had in sacrifice to God, he knew that in just a couple days he would hang on a cross doing the same thing. Friends, Jesus doesn't call us to do anything that he hasn't done himself. He's like the widow's mites. Gave himself completely, completely, unto the will of the Father, sacrificing himself. And he did it for our salvation. So friends, nobody should leave here thinking, well, you know, I want God to love me, so I'll give. I want God to love me, so I'll obey. No, 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 no. He's demonstrated his love once and for all by what he did on the cross. Now God invites you and he says, I want you to love me with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. Look at the widow. She's a great example of that. Shouldn't we pray and ask God to build that love in our lives? I think it's important that we do it because it's not just an intellectual thing. It's a spiritual thing. We're running a little bit later here this morning, so we'll forego the final song, and I'll just conclude with prayer right now. Father, we ask you now in Jesus' name for you to do a work in our lives of helping us to love you more. Father, I know that there is genuine love for you among us in this room. But none of us can look at this text and say 
that we really love you with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, and with all of our strength. Lord, we want to. And we ask that you build this within us to make us those who love you better and love you more. Won't you do this great work in us, God? Show us this great example of the widow who gave so sacrificially unto you. Father, fill our hearts with that same kind of desire to love you, even when it cost us something. Jesus, you loved us with such a costly love. You laid down your life for us. So let us not hold back in any way from loving you, even when it's costly. Build this great work in us, Lord. Touch us and then touch others through us. In Jesus' name, amen.